I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Feast Your Ears is produced by Heritage Radio Network, which is a nonprofit member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. I'm here every Wednesday talking with people that I find interesting, and I hope you do too, and would love it if you would help us keep HRN alive and become a member. There are some really great uh, opportunities uh, for membership. You get access to lots of delicious things. You get access to, I believe right now, you get some Heritage Radio koozies um, if you uh, become a member. So get on heritageradionetwork.org and become a member and help, help support this and all the other great shows. Today is episode number 39 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm in the studio with Jeremy Umansky. I'm very pleased to have Jeremy here. Jeremy's a forager, a father, a lover of koji, and is based in Cleveland. And later this year, he will be opening uh, a new project called Larder. It's a curated delicatessen and bakery. Thanks, Jeremy, for joining me. Hey, you're welcome, Harry. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I first found uh, found out about Jeremy um, because I was teaching a miso class. Um, I My friend Nancy Hachisu, who lives in Japan, was supposed to teach a miso-making class the day of the one great snow that we had last year here in New York. And so she was in Tokyo. For, she was in New York from Tokyo for a couple of days. We had scheduled months before that she was going to teach a miso class. We had brought over all the organic soybeans and all of the koji and everything that we needed from Yamaki Chozo in Saitama, Japan. Um, and she came to the store, and there was already a foot and a half of snow on the ground. And like 20 minutes after she arrived to get set up, the city closed the streets and shut down all the transportation. Oh, jeez. So we canceled the class. <laughs> she, she basically, you know, I mean, I, I had been to, um, I had visited miso manufacturing before. I had done a lot of fermenting. And so basically she downloaded all of her information, all of her tips and tricks from making it at home to me. And then a couple of weeks later, I actually gave the class. And one of my students, when we were talking about Koji, said, hey, you know, have you seen this TED Talk? from this guy in Cleveland about wow. Koji. And so yeah, that I'm is, as right as your shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I, that's how I found out about Jeremy. I immediately went home and I looked it up and everybody should look it up. Um, there's a really, um, I don't What's the best way to search for it? Just your name? Uh, yeah, I think my name. Yeah. Uh, I think the talk is titled adventure time in the Koji kingdom. Um, I highly, I cannot recommend it enough. If you have any, inf you know, if you are interested in fermentation and you are interested in Koji, um, and even if you don't write it now at the beginning of the show, 
know what Koji is, by the end you will. And I highly recommend that you watch it because it's a, a fascinating TED Talk, and that's sort of how I found Jeremy. And then we well, connected you. over a number a number of other things. Um, so why don't we we can start why don't we start with Koji? Um, sure. Since that is sort of how we, we became connected. Um, can you explain to the listeners what is Koji? So uh, simplistically, it's it's a fungus. Um, you know, if we go a little deeper, it's a mold or it can even be classified as a yeast. Um, and what it does is it grows on different types of foods that either are high in protein or high in starch and breaks apart their proteins or breaks apart their starches into amino acids or different types of sugars. And it allows us to create a very wide array of different foodstuffs once that happens. So the place I think that, that most people encounter it, whether they realize it or not, is if you order sake, you are encountering the work of Koji. Totally. Uh, sake, miso, as you were talking yep. about, soy sauce, something we uh, almost every person I know has in, in their pantry at home. You can't make those foods without the use of Koji. Uh, soy sauce, they, they grow the Koji on soybeans, and it helps break apart the beans and gets all those savory flavors out that, that soy sauce is known for. And then that resulting liquid eventually is, is soy sauce. So it's, it's instrumental in the production of quite a few foods that are ubiquitous, uh, you know, our pantries here in America and other places in the world. And so tell me how, you know, so, so we know those sort of, you know, what we think of as Asian flavors and sort of Asian uses for koji. Um, but you've done a lot of work to experiment with other other uses for it. Sure. How, how did you first encounter Koji as a tool in your pantry, you know, in, in, in advance of, say, using something like miso that is an end product? Sure. So uh, believe it or not, I had never realized what Koji was or even really heard of it uh, until just about two years ago. Um, uh, the restaurant group that I was working for in Cleveland, the chef said to me, hey, I want to I want to be producing misos in house. And I was a larder master and oversaw the, the production and execution of the tasting menu there. And uh, I said, sure, we'll do it. So I got a book on miso production and it says, I need, I need this koji. So got it, started making miso. And, and uh, kind of going into that, the other part of what I do is uh, I specialize in wild foods. So I do a lot of work with wild fungus, wild plants, uh, everything from cultivating fungi to... Um, capturing from the wild and putting them in, in cultivated settings and serving them as food. So I understood the life cycle of something like koji, right? It, it's a mold. It's a fungus. So it, it, it does similar things that other mushrooms do. Right. Uh, once I kind of made that connect, I said, hey, there's so much more that can be done with this than you, you see in classical literature, or that's being done today. And that was kind of the start of that thought process. It was, well, hey, if I can get this to grow on soybeans or rice, I bet you I could get it to grow on just about anything. Right, and, and so you've gone on to actually use it on proteins, meat, meat and, and fish proteins, I yeah. think in a way that, that I certainly have not encountered pretty much anywhere else. Yeah, so... <laughs> uh, and essentially what we do is we create the peak environment for the koji to grow on the outside of meat, uh, whether it's seafood or different types of terrestrial proteins. Um, and it's really, really fantastic. And uh, essentially what we're able to do is rapidly accelerate the aging process of foods, which that's something that's really desirable with dry aged beef, for example. Right. So 
by culturing the koji on this this meat, so let's say we take a steak, a New York strip, uh, we can actually replicate a texture and a flavor profile that's comparable uh, to a 30-day piece of, of dry-aged beef after about 48 hours. Wow. So, uh, and kind of once that was discovered, uh, kind of fell down this rabbit hole, right? So if, if we can age a fresh cut sure. to replicate something else, then what would this do for charcuterie, right? Most charcuterie has different types of molds and yeast growing on the outside. It was just a logical progression. Uh, and we found out, um, you know, we do that 48-hour culturing process where we grow the koji on the outside, and then we hang the meat. And after 7 to 10 days, depending on what the, the cut is and its size, we have the equivalent of charcuterie that's three to six months old, depending on what it is. Wow. I mean, so where my brain immediately goes when, when hearing about and thinking about those things and when I watched your TED Talk is, you know, this actually, to me, there's a huge commercial opportunity there because one of the reasons that dry aged meat is more expensive is that you have to store it. You have to buy it. And sure. You have to leave it around for two months. And you're losing water weight, and so the price has to go up per pound. And so, you know, if we're in a position where we can accelerate that, that's amazing. I mean, that's- yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's not foolproof, and of there are, there are times that things go wrong with with the process, and you you can't use what you cultured, but uh, it works. I'd say ninety five percent of the time. Um, Part of the research and investigation into this was uh, when I lived in New York City here and I lived in the Hudson Valley, I was a co-convivium leader of Slow Food Hudson Valley and very active here. I had been to Terra Madre in Italy, their, their international convention. So I tend to be very civically minded when it comes to food and food rights issues. And experimenting with this, I was thinking, wow, I'm, I'm creating something that's nutrient dense in terms of what a protein is and it's shelf stable in a week right like it's it's happening incredibly fast like what if a bodega in east new york could have this instead of slim jims right you know so so you know you you bring up that's the both ends of the spectrum you know for for a butcher to be able to offer a product that not everybody has access to bring it to a, a level that they everybody could have brought access to yep um, or, you know, on a mass scale to be able to take maybe tougher off, off cuts of meat and be able to make them shelf stable and readily accessible to everybody. I mean, the shelf stability is fascinating, right? I mean, it, it also, I mean, it's a, as a, pres- as a preservative technique, yeah. you could even apply that to places where, you know, where there isn't refrigeration. Yeah. And you it, could apply it to places where there are, you know, um, you know, war, war torn areas where there isn't electrical you know, completely. I mean, and we've investigated kind of, uh, we've acted on a couple and investigated like many different routes with this. Um, it's really interesting too, because, you know, going back to that nutrient density, a lot of charcuterie is really high in salt. Uh, some of it's heavily spiced and there's a, a fairly, as someone who works in restaurants, there's a lot of people that need low salt foods or can't handle different spices and seasonings. And we're able to do this with, minimal to no added sodium right uh i mean we're anywhere from half a percent to two percent by weight of a cut of meat uh, is the amount of salt and sugar that we use for this process so compared to other types of charcuterie that can be up to 10 percent salt by weight right 
it's that's a huge difference. I mean, if you buy if you buy a cheap you know chicken or turkey and brine in the supermarket, you're getting more salt. Yeah, I mean, you could be as high as thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and then the other end of the spectrum, of course, is that we're talking about something that fits very well into the flavor profiles and sort of the 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 cool factor of say a high end tasting menu. Sure, so it's really fascinating that it, it runs the gamut. Between, sure, between those two things. I mean, it very much does. Um, you know, we have. Uh, I think the the high extreme end is the foods that we actually culture it on. And the other end, which is just as good, is where we use uh, products that are derived from koji, things like shio, uh, which is a mixture of this koji kin, this this rice that has the koji on it, salt and water. And then we have something called amazaki, which is rice, water, and this koji kin. Um, And those we can use in different applications, too, and get just absolutely incredible results. I mean, it, it's it's mind-boggling. When I show these different experiments to people, they say to me, "Why why isn't everybody doing this?" Right. Right. I mean, that that was my first thought. Honestly, my my thought was how how could we do this at the Brooklyn Kitchen and have it be something we can have more people can know about, more people can taste. Yeah. Um, you know, is the is the forty eight hour factor that you mentioned with the proteins is that related to the life cycle of the mold? It, exactly. I mean, that's directly. It, it takes about. 48 hours for the mold to fully colonize the outside of a piece of meat um, or a piece of seafood or just whatever it may be. Because uh, this technique, wh- what we do is we actually dust the outside of the item we're going to culture with a little bit of rice flour and a little bit of the koji spores. And it's a thin enough layer of rice flour that the fungus actually grows on the surface of the meat. It uses that that thin layer of rice flour to get going and then it adheres to Mm. to whatever we're growing it on um and it it takes about 48 hours for that to happen sometimes it can be 72 it did koji is really interesting because um it's a living organism right right and as much as we want to have control and domain over it it has its own mind essentially uh so sometimes it'll take a little bit longer sometimes it'll be a little faster and if if uh if listeners wanted to try and experiment with this at home i mean can you can you can you explain like one thing they could try like let's say they wanted to age a piece of strip steak how would how would they do it that i i think that's a little more complicated okay. that that sort of thing like i i do use a um almost a specialized type of dehydrator that's completely sealed off. I create little microenvironments in it. But if they wanted to still be able to simulate some of those profiles, I recommend them getting into Amazaki. Got it. Um, a lot of people, first their first experience with koji is with the shio koji, the salted koji. Uh, I think that's great. It's wonderful. I use it all the time. But then you're working with salt. Right, so whatever you work with with that is going to have salt. Maybe you don't want salt at that point in the process. So, I use the amazaki, which doesn't have salt in it. Uh, you can make it either sour or sweet. Uh, so you can get some really interesting different flavor profiles with it. And it's very versatile. I mean, we use it for our for our deli project we have coming up. Uh, we bake bread with amazaki. We uh, marinate and incubate different cuts of meat in it. Um, we even use it for our gravelox. Mm. We use that or shio, depending on what type of fish we have. Um, so I think those are the most versatile. And you still have the enzymatic action. This, this mold produces these enzymes. You'll still have it with the amazaki or the shio uh, and the cultured. So I think that's a great starting point. And where do you think, I mean, what is, in, in your opinion, what is the, what's the best place to get koji in the states 
Uh, so if you're going to be doing work with spores, it, it comes into these different forms, and that can be what's really confusing for some people. Because uh, if you search Koji on Amazon, you'll get some a variety of different products made from Koji or made with Koji. And you'll also get, there's this, I think there's a hip-hop artist that goes by Koji. You get, <laughs> right, there's a great. wide variety yeah. of stuff. <laughs> uh, so if you're going to work with stuff from Spore, there's a company called Gem Cultures. They're who I got my original spores from. They're fantastic. Their website is straight out of 1996. It looks like an AOL online build out of that website. Uh, but you order from them. They ship it to you. It's, it's fresh. It's great. I've never had an issue with their product. Uh, so that's a great way to go. There, there's also, I find Amazon, if I'm ever in a pinch and I need this Koji Kin, which is this rice that has, it's fuzzy, it has a Koji on it. If I'm ever in a pinch and I need a large amount and I just can't produce it in my lab, um, there are some good sources on, on Amazon that ship direct from Japan. Oh, okay. So um, I don't know what any of the packaging says. Sure. It's... Uh, I can tell you it's a blue bordered package <laughs> with red lettering and yep. you can see through it to that see it has the, the code in it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Great. Um, cool. Well, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of work with, with Koji. I've never done any of the, the protein stuff. I mean, I've made miso. And we're we're going to get there. Sugar. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Um, I really, I want to get there. Um, and I do think that there is this incredible opportunity that, you know, this is an ancient ingredient and it's an ancient thing. People have been culturing it for you know, for millennia. Yeah. So commonly it's believed that, uh, it was domesticated about 2,700 years ago. And I was just talking with, a, a someone a couple weeks ago. Uh, there's a scientist and I forget where they're out of, I want to say Rutgers, but I could be completely wrong. Uh, but now there's archeological evidence that points to it being domesticated about 9,000 years ago. Wow. So it's a very, either way, 9,000, 2,700 yeah. It's been around and used specifically for food production for a long time. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, it, really, it really is. Did you, um, I mean, when you were growing up, did you eat weird foods? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice Jewish boy from, from the upper Midwest, <laughs> from Cleveland. Uh, so, yeah, comparatively. Sure. You know? Sure. Chicken liver and things like yeah, that. Yeah, chicken liver, chicken feet. Yep. Uh, you know, seeing that sort of stuff wasn't gefilte fish. You know, yep. a lot of people are like, whoa. Uh, that was all normal food for me growing up. My grandmother was a kosher caterer. So, you know, I, I saw a lot of, you know, Jewish and Eastern European ethnic food. And yep. a lot of that is, is peasant food. You know, yep. it uses odd bits and ends. And it was very normal growing up. Um, Going, going on a little bit in my teenage years, uh, as I started really getting involved in food, I remember I was probably right after my bar mitzvah, I read an article about how people eat bugs. They eat insects. <laughs> uh, and I started going to a local pet store. My, my youngest sister, I got her feeder mice for her birthday, and her and I would breed them and sell them back to the pet store for a quarter <laughs> apiece. And eventually we got to a point, I, I was really intrigued by eating bugs, so they would trade me mice for crickets. Nice. And I would take the crickets home and roast them up and feed them at everybody. And I think that's when I just, I just started falling down the rabbit hole. There was, <laughs> there was no stopping from there. That's awesome. We're going to take a short break and uh, hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll continue down the rabbit hole.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today uh, in the studio with me is Jeremy Umansky, a Cleveland chef, fermentation aficionado, and koji whisperer. Um, you can find uh, and follow Jeremy online at TM Gastronaut. I uh, definitely recommend check out his Instagram feed. It's got uh, great pictures of him foraging with his 19-month-old daughter, and pictures of all the koji stuff we've been talking about, and all those other all those other projects. Um, Jeremy, I'd love to, to talk a little bit. I mean, we've been we've gone pretty far down the rabbit hole of, of fermentation, and certainly could go on all day with that. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and sort of your history and and your food history and how that's leading up to the opening of Larder. Sure, sure. Um, uh, just before the break, I said my grandmother was a kosher caterer, and uh, I started working for her in her kitchens probably just before my bar mitzvah. I'm Eleven years old, ten years old, something like that. Um, so I grew up around lots of good ethnic cooking, which is in itself kind of interesting because most Eastern European food is not very good. Right. <laughs> and it's not the foods themselves, but the people cooking them weren't the best cooks. Right. You know, I, I hope she's not uh, <laughs> about to hit my head from behind from, from wherever she is. But, um, you know, that's what it boiled down to. The, the proper use of method and technique behind those foods was severely lacking. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how those cuisines evolved. Um, you know, so growing up with that, seeing that my mother was cooked all the time for us. Um, she likes to boast that she had a charter subscription to Food and Wine when it was launched in the 80s. She collects all the hardbound uh, cool. issues they do every year. Um, so I grew up in, in this environment that was very food positive. Um, you know, as I went on, I ended up going to culinary school. Um, I did study cultural anthropology before going to culinary school. And one of the things I noticed in my studies of that was food, not even a, a, a religion or a belief in a god or gods, exists in every culture across the world. Right. Um, but food is always there. And it's so important in some cultures that they even use it as currency. Right. So that kind of stood out in my head. And having worked with food, worked in restaurants growing up, and you know this decision leading to go to culinary school, I really decided that this, this was the, the crux of civilization. This was our humanity. It's food, right? Right. Uh, even people are fighting a war. They've got to take a break and eat at some point. Sure. Right. Hopefully I mean, look at, all, look at all the innovations in, like, modern food production that actually came from military. Yeah, yeah. And the military needing to get food exactly. to the soldiers. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, I always did a lot of investigation into what food is to me, to others, um, to any given locale. And that just reinvigorated my, my love of some of the foods that I grew up with. Uh, things like gefilte fish and 
uh, and blocks and matzo ball soup. I mean, you talk about technique. I think that gefilte fish is one of those things that, um, you know, at growing up, for me anyway, and maybe for you as well, I mean, gefilte fish came out of a jar, at least at our, you know, at my grandfather's Seder. And, you know, he always liked to eat the jelly. And we were all like, uh, I mean, my favorite part, honestly, was always the horseradish because I always liked stuff that was spicy and the horseradish was really delicious. But, you know, it was it was really sweet and it was overcooked and it was just like so disgusting. And then one year my aunt is a chef. And so finally, I I think it's after my grandfather passed away because he really loved the Manischewitz stuff in the jar. Sure. My aunt was like, I'm just going to make it. Yeah. And she made it, and it was, like, revelatory. And everybody was, like, wanted seconds and thirds. And, you know, I mean, like, it was amazing. Sure. I was fortunate in my family. My grandmother always made it from scratch. And it was a recipe that she got from her grandmother. Wow. In fact, my mother now has the fish bowl and the the hand chopper, kind of like a Missoula, uh, that's been passed down for, I think, five generations now. Cool. For specifically to make gefilte fish. Just for the gefilte fish. Just for the gefilte fish. That's all it's used for. Um, so yeah, I was fortunate enough that I didn't have jarred gefilte yeah. fish growing up. My dad's brother really likes the jarred stuff. So at, at Passover, we'd always get a jar just for him. Nobody else <laughs> would touch it. But you know, yeah, looking at those things, like now our gefilte fish, we, we grind it a specific way. We, um, being in Cleveland, uh, we really wanted to reflect our local terroir. So we use a mix of lake perch. Sometimes we do put smelt in there. Uh, we also use white bass. Um, and then we use local trout. Uh, and that's what we put in our gefilte fish. We're, I'm working with a local nature center that I teach foraging classes at to hopefully be able to call. They have uh, some invasive carp in their lake system. Oh, okay. So hopefully eventually we're going to be able to, to sustainably help them manage that. And use it and make a and, fish, and they're just, they're about a mile and a half down the road from our proposed location, so it's even even more special that way. Um, but yeah, like I said, we we blend the fish a specific way, we grind it a very specific way, we create a very unique texture. Uh, instead of using the traditional like boiled carrots or onions in it, we use a fermented product, uh, either made from carrot peels or onion skins or that sort of thing. Uh, and then we do we cook our gefilte fish sous vide. It never gets overcooked. Right. Everything about the experience of eating gefilte fish, the aroma, the texture, the flavor, it's all contained when you cook it sous vide. And we end up with a product that's just fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, so, you know, that's how the proper use of method and technique can really go and take this this peasant food, this overlooked food, this this food that some people have, you know, bad food memories associated with and, and really make it something that's fantastic and enjoyable by all. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so tell me a little bit more about larder. So, I mean, you're, you, I know you're not, you don't quite have an opening date yet, but let's say I'm in Cleveland a year from today. Sure. And I'm like, I'm going to go to larder. What, what am I going to see? What is it going to be? So aesthetically what we're going for is we want the food to be reminiscent of what I saw growing up or what you saw growing up. We want you to come and see and get the corned beef sandwich and say, that's a corned beef sandwich or that's a matzo ball soup. Um, but things like our corned beef, we, we go from raw brisket to slicing on a sandwich in just about 50 hours Wow! because we use koji to create the corned beef. Um, so we'll have this food that has these unique stories behind it. Uh, these techniques also allow us to use much more of the product than you traditionally would get. So we have much higher food yields. Uh, so we can do more things. We have a higher food budget essentially. Right. Um, so you'll, we're, we're going to be kosher style. So essentially what that means to us is we won't have pork. We won't have shellfish. Right. 
so we've put this. Where does in, Koji fall in the kosher? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it's most mushrooms are kosher as far right. as I know. Right. I'm not sure about mold though. Right. You know, I, I mean, so much, so I, you know, I sort of feel like, I mean, I, I've never kept kosher and, and some of my family members are, but you know, it's not something I've really studied. Yeah. Um, but you know, I feel like growing up, one of the references that was always made about the reasoning behind things being kosher was that it really more than anything had to do with things that made people sick and it was yeah. to protect the population. You know, it was like the kosher, the kashrut laws were really like the department of health kind of. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, interesting thing about that too, my grandmother being a kosher caterer, she and virtually none of my family have ever kept kosher. <laughs> it's just where they made their money. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm not sure how Koji fits into that, but, you know, being kosher style, essentially what we're doing, um, we really feel that limitations spur creativity and innovation. So by taking out an array of ingredients, you know, different shellfish and especially pork that you would traditionally find in a deli setting for different charcuterie and meat preparations, uh, we we feel we're putting these, these creative limits on ourselves to spur creativity, right? So we want to be able to replicate any type of charcuterie you would be able to find, whether it's stuff that's not aged, stuff that's long aged, whatever it may be, but using animals that would be considered kosher. Um, so you'll see a wide variety of everything made in house from different breads that we're doing. We use koji in, in all of our breads. Uh, one of the breads that we just developed now too, it's, uh, it uses a sour amazaki. And by doing that, we don't need a bread starter, hmm. which I have the wonderful ability to kill incessantly. <laughs> I can't keep a bread stutter alive. I've got kefir grains that are over a dozen years old, but I can't but keep, you a, can't bread keep st- a starter alive. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we use the amazaki in the bread. We create this accelerated rye sourdough and, uh, we proof it in a smoker at 80 degrees. So we're going to be doing these just wonderful, fun things with food that really highlight the best qualities of the food. Like rye and smoke go so well together. Yep. Um, you just don't see it done. Right. And so we want people to really realize like the true nature of what these foods could be and, and what you can do. So, uh, you know, ideally people are going to come up to a counter and they're going to point to what they want from a case and go have a seat and relax. It's awesome. So, yeah. Great. And how big is the restaurant going to be? Uh, we're looking at around 50 seats. Uh, and there'll be a retail component as well. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it's going to be counter-driven service. So whether you're standing at the counter and you want a sandwich to sit down or you want, you know, a half a pound of this, a, a quart of that to take home, it'll be there. Uh, we also use a lot of wild foods. Um, I use just over 100 different species of wild mushrooms. We use about 250-ish species of wild plants. We get almost 1,000 usable parts from them. Wow. Uh, so we're going to be incorporating those sorts of things into the cuisine, into the retail aspect of it. Uh, we're also going to have freeze dryers. Uh, there's some wonderful ones that are, are now available for like the restaurant and home market. Hmm. Uh, so we're going to be able to produce a wide variety of, of different products with those that we're really excited about that we haven't really seen in a localized retail setting. Uh, so there, there's going to be a lot of hopefully what people feel are, are fun foods and enjoyable foods there. Um, it sounds awesome. I, I look forward to, I look forward to coming to see it. Well, um, and I mean, you know, so you think you're six months away, a year away? We're, we're hoping right around New Year's. I, I mean, uh, Great. our, our very original projection was the first quarter of 2017. Sure. It looked like things were going to go faster for a little bit. And now we slowed down. So it kind of looks like we're lining back up with that original projection. 
Cool. Um, that's, that's awesome. So what do you think, I mean, it, it sounds to me like what you're creating is kind of a, it, it sounds like it's going to be sort of an amazing mix of, of nostalgia with really pushing the envelope into the future at the same time. Like, and, and that's what I've done in my career with my food. You know, we, we want, we want people at a base level, a base emotional level to be able to connect with the food as something that's comfortable. And then we want to take them on this wild ride if they choose to go on it and say, hey, well, this is how we got there. Right. Somebody might want just the corned beef sandwich and not, and not care, right? right, that it's made with koji and that it was made faster or made different. They might just be like, this is a great corned beef sandwich and I want a corned beef sandwich for lunch. Exactly. Which is fine. Right? It, totally. And then the person who comes in is like, wait a minute, how did you make this again? Yeah. Then you can really get into it with yeah. them. And so we'll, we'll be able to hopefully be able to appease both ends you know, of, of, of our, our target clientele with that. So awesome yeah where do you think uh you know as someone who has sort of pushed the envelope i think a little bit of fermentation in the last say 10 years where do you think we're going to be in the next 10 i mean like 10 years from today if you and i sit down do you think there will be other types of spores that we're suddenly working with i mean as someone you work do somewhere with koji i've done a lot of work with vinegar i mean you know or do you think it's going to be more things that are really historic that just are coming more into the i I think it's going to be a combination i really do and i think uh, the more we get into fermentation, the more we learn that there's things that are fermented, there's things that go through enzymatic or autolytic processes, and neither one is exclusive of the other. They, there's always a little bit of one happening in the other, even if it's primarily you know, fermentation. There's still a little bit of autolysis going on and, and vice versa. So I think we're going to see more exploration into those individual breakdowns. Hmm. Uh, I think we're going to see Koji's a great example. I think we're going to really start to see chefs and food producers embracing enzymatic and autolytic activity and really start to understand it, right? Fish sauce, a lot of us think it's a fermented food, but it's mainly an autolytic process. It's mainly the digestive enzymes of the fish breaking everything down and right. breaking apart those proteins into amino acids. There's very little actual fermentation in terms of microbial activity happening. Right. So as we start to kind of understand that, I think we're going to be able to make um, some really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. I, I was just uh, introduced somebody that's going to be introducing me, somebody that grows cocoa. And I really feel that using koji to process cocoa is going to unveil some, hopefully, flavor profiles and tastes in chocolate that we've never eaten before. So I think we're going to start to get deeper into that that enzymatic realm. And a lot of that is fungal-driven. Right. Right? So looking at different species of mushrooms and what happens when they break down a certain substrate and what we're left with. Uh, so I think there'll be exploration into there. I also think the big thing is we're going to be looking at ingredients in different ways. My prediction is... Uh, especially with the foraging, I look at an oak tree and I see so many different things. I can extract vanillin from oak bark. I can extract tannins from oak leaves. I can get vanillin from those also. I get nuts. So I look at something that classically isn't a food or a food stuff. Sure. And I have ways to incorporate it into my cuisine. So I, I think our And knowledge, then you potentially have mushrooms growing at the base of that oak tree. Oh, completely. With them. Yeah. Completely. You know, what's the connection there and how does that play into our food? Right. So uh, I think over the, over the next 10 years, we're going to see heavy investigation into that. Like, why, why is this peel of whatever vegetable we're working with in the kitchen considered waste? What's, what's the inherent value in it? Yep. So I, I think that's going to be a huge thing. And fermentation and, and autolytic and enzymatic reactions are, are going to play a huge role 
role in being able to process and use those things. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward to a, a delicious and fascinating future that we've just sort of <laughs> laid out. Um, well, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but um, thank you, Jeremy. It's been a real pleasure. You're very to, welcome. And, to and I got to say, I, I lived in, my wife and I, between the Hudson Valley and Brooklyn, we, we lived here for a number of years and we were regulars at your store. And you're, it's awesome. So it's great to finally meet you. You know, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here, and to David Tattashore for engineering this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 